And now I'm going to give the uh, pulpit here over to you, sir. Is it working? Can hold on. Let me put it up there. Does that sound good? Can you guys hear me? Okay. So, if you will, please turn with me in your Bibles to First Corinthians chapter ten. We're going to be looking at verses twenty-three all the way to chapter eleven, verse one. So, I'm going to give you a little bit of background of this text before we dive into it, because I think it'll help you understand where Paul is coming from in this letter to the Corinthians. So this discussion actually starts in 1 Corinthians 8 at the beginning of the chapter where Paul is writing in response to the Corinthians to their question about food offered to idols. And he goes into some detail about the fact that idols aren't actually existent, but the fact that these Corinthians came out of the pagan religions, some of them still believed that they existed and had a weak conscience about eating food offered to them because they felt as if they were dishonoring God. So in this, Paul talks about wisdom. He talks about the difference between knowledge and love. Knowledge puffs up and love builds up. And again, some of the Corinthians knew that the idols were imaginary, while others still were ignorant to the fact. Paul goes on to remind the Corinthians that the God that they worship through Christ Jesus is the only true and living God, and that idols are figments of their imagination. However, Paul also reminds the brothers who know that God is the only God, that there are some weak brothers who need to be gently handled as they don't understand the fact that these these pagan idols don't exist and that the food worship to them is ultimately under the control of God. Then it goes on, Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 starts to explain how the Corinthians can use this freedom they have in Christ and their loosened consciences in order to love other Corinthians and to be a light to the Gentiles. And in doing so, he gives kind of examples of how he has given himself for the sake of the gospel. And then going into chapter 10, which is our text, towards the end, in chapter in verse 14 of chapter 10, Paul exhorts the Corinthians, again, as he did in chapter 6 and chapter 8, to flee from all idolatry and sexual immorality, But this time, he goes on to give a hypothetical discussing, so, yes, the Corinthians are saying all things are lawful because we're in Christ. But he gives an example as to when things that might be lawful aren't necessarily good. And how, as stronger believers, we can bring weaker believers along and preserve them in the faith by watching out for their weak conscience. And Paul, ultimately through this, is trying to teach the Corinthians how to live in the light of the glory of God, in the freedom they have in Christ. So again, we're starting in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23. I'll read along here. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. 
eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Lord, we come before you acknowledging that you are sovereign over all things. We know that you have freed us from our bondage to sin. We know that in Christ we have freedom to please God and to bring glory to your holy name. And we ask that we would do so today on the Lord's Day and as we go from here every day, seeking to bring glory to your name, seeking the good of the kingdom of God, spreading the gospel for the sake of other souls and not for our own advantage. We pray, Father, that as we read through this letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that we can apply it to our own lives in order to gain some wisdom and grow in our faith and our knowledge of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we're just going to kind of go through the text here, starting in verse 23. Again, I gave you some background. And at this point, in verse 23, for those of you reading in the English Standard Version, whenever it says, all... I'm in the wrong chapter. Let me go back to 10. Sorry. Whenever it says that all things are lawful, it's in quotations. So... Just to give a good context here, whenever Paul is saying all things are lawful, he's not saying this of his own accord. He's actually quoting what the Corinthians wrote in the letter to him, and he's answering them. He actually did the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 when they were talking about um, sexual immorality, and he was rebuking them for that. And actually, he used the same phrase that all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful in back in chapter 6. So this has been common in this letter. But I just want to, it makes a lot more sense whenever you understand that Paul isn't saying all things are lawful. He's responding to the Corinthians who now, being brought into the church, see their freedom as the ability to do as they please. But Paul, knowing better and being trained as a Jew, understands that the law is still binding on the believers. But he wants to talk about something that we know as liberty of conscience, where the believer led by the Holy Spirit, will have certain things that they do or don't do depending on their convictions. The Greek word for lawful here actually is, it's more of a a Greek understanding than a Jewish understanding. It means it is proper or permitted rather than the connotations of the Old Testament law. It doesn't have any reference to the actual law as, as the Jews would have known it. So this is more of just an understanding of how the, the Gentile believers in Corinth can live properly among one another and build up each other in the church. And then in the same in verse 23, the Greek word here for build up, this is also used in 1 Corinthians 6, 
I think it's in chap. It's in verse. I'm sorry. It's in eight. He says. Yeah, he says this, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And the word build up here is the word oikodomeo, which is oikos is a house. So think of basically this verb means to build a house. So it's an interesting metaphor Paul is using to say that the Corinthians are to build the church basically from the foundation up by loving one another and also by recognizing that not everything that is lawful is going to build the church. That as we continue on in verse 24, Paul tells the Corinthians to not, he says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of their neighbor. And again, Paul exhorts them in this and then goes on to give them examples of this, of his own doing for the sake of the gospel of Christ. As we continue on in verse 25 and 26, it's interesting because Paul was telling them to flee from idolatry in chapters 8 and the beginning of chapter 10. And now here he says, Oh, so you're able to eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. So the word for meat market, it's interesting. It's actually a shambles. So for any of you who know what a butcher shop looks like, they're talking about selling stuff still in the shambles hanging on the rail. And in the Gentile culture, these would have already been sacrificed to idols as uh, during the slaughtering process. So any, any Christian going to the meat market would know that these were sacrificed to idols. But Paul tells them, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any questions on the ground of conscience. So he's basically saying, you are not bound by your conscience to withhold from meat offered to idols. And this is going back to chapter 8, where he says, idols don't exist. So the point is, is because Christians who are mature in their faith start to understand that there's only one God, and all the other gods are false gods, there is nothing holding them back from partaking, because ultimately that meat was created by God, and sustained by God. He uses this idea of food offered to idols in, in this section to talk as a hypothetical to teach the Corinthians about how to use their freedom in Christ for the good of their neighbor rather than for their own desires. This is otherwise known as Christian liberty. And I mentioned the term liberty of conscience. But the concept is basically, we all know that there's the, the moral law that is prescripted in the Old Testament to Moses in Exodus, but then liberty of conscience is the idea that there's certain things that some believers will be opposed to based on internal conviction by the Spirit. For example, some people will not drink alcohol, and it's not necessarily just a physiological, physiological issue. It's due to some former conviction, while someone else, they don't feel that conviction. So the, the brother who feels convicted on alcohol cannot bind the conscience and make it that this is the law. But Paul is exhorting, saying, if that's the case, if the brother wants you not to eat the meat because he's, he's, his conscience is weak, then you do it for the sake of building up. And that's kind of the idea here. And then in verse 26, Paul says, he quotes actually Psalm 24, saying, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And this is pretty interesting, thinking about how God is overall creation, as Pastor Pogliotti mentioned in the introduction, and how all things are subject to his hand. So Paul is just reminding them that even if this food was offered to idols, everything is under God's control. He created it. He owns it. He is the master, the king of the universe. All this food, as we know, there was dietary restrictions to the Jews in the Old Testament, in the old dispensation of the covenant. But as Christ came 
and died and was resurrected for our sins and ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the veil on the temple tore in half, all food, in the vision of Peter, all food that was deemed clean unto Christians to eat. And this is kind of where he's going as well, is that for the Christian there's nothing unclean, because ultimately it is from God. Paul goes on in 27, verses 27 to 30, again, to discuss, like we talked about, the weaker conscience of, the, of believers. But the context is that if you're invited to dinner at an unbeliever's house, and you have another brother in Christ there, and he says this was offered to idols, and he has an issue of conscience, then you withhold in that case. Paul doesn't say, if you're in the presence of unbelievers, withhold from the food offered to idols in all circumstances. So that... And throughout the letter, letter to the Corinthians, Paul often is not prescribing to them commands as much as exhorting them to do what is good and expedient for the glory of God. So we need to understand that in this context, that Paul is not prescribing them a necessary way to do everything, but rather teaching them and training them to love one another and to love God. Paul says that a brother who does not understand that idols don't exist, like I mentioned, they have a weak conscience. All that means is someone who's ignorant to the truth will be more likely to be convicted by that if they don't understand there's no weightiness to those idols that the food has been offered to. And again, the exhortation here is that the Corinthians would not make their brothers stumble over an issue of conscience because the gospel is more important than individual conscience in this circumstance. He also, Paul, goes on to state that Christians have liberty in their conscience, which the important part about liberty, as he says here, he says, for why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? So the key there is Paul is telling the Corinthians that someone else's conscience cannot bind your conscience. In essence, if someone is convicted of something that is not directly prohibited or prescribed in the scriptures, that is an issue of conscience, they cannot bind you on that. Unless, unless it's clearly out, laid out in the scriptures that it's prohibited or allowed. So the idea is there's things in this life that some people will be opposed to, some people will allow, and ultimately it's an issue of conscience. And as Reformed Christians, that's part of the Westminster Catechism, and we need to understand that it's an important, it's an important fact that if you don't focus on this aspect, it can lead into legalism or antinomianism where we either throw out the law or we make everything law. And this is that balance that Paul is trying to get with the, with the uh, Gentile believers because they didn't have the law. So they're coming from the end where there was no law. And they're coming in. So they're more likely to go to the extreme and make everything law. So just keep that in mind. I think that that is, that is really important. So as we go on, this is one of the most important verses that Paul wrote. At least it's the most quoted uh, contemporarily. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. It's very motivational. It's very uplifting. But in this context, if you look at it in the context of the letter to the Corinthians and the passage, Paul is really saying it doesn't matter what you eat. Food, as he says in chapter 6 and chapter 8, food does not um, bring you before God. It does not make you any better before God. Excuse me. So what he's saying is, do all to the glory of God and do not worry about it on the grounds of your conscience if you are not convicted of something. In essence, as Gentile believers, the Corinthians needed to understand that they were able to partake in the daily rhythms of life that they once knew 
but they need to do it focusing on their new trajectory of glorifying God and all they do. And that is their call as Christian believers not to forsake everything they once knew, like eating food and drinking. Paul goes on here to talk about giving no offense to Jews or Greeks, sort of the church. And Paul basically is not advocating for peace at all costs. Paul just is continuing to say his whole ministry is focused on sacrificing himself to bring forth the gospel to all the nations. That's, that's what Paul was called, for, called to do as an apostle, as he continues to say that he tried to please everyone in all that he did, and he was not seeking his own advantage. His own, his own helpfulness is the word. So it's important to recognize that Paul is, Paul is really not arrogant at all. He's saying, he's trying to teach them by leading as an example. And that's why in chapter 11, verse 1, when Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ, it, that could be taken in a wrong way, but I don't know why they put it in chapter 11, because it kind of really ties this really well together at the end of chapter 10. But if you think about it, Paul is urging them not to follow him, but He's saying, follow me as long as I follow Christ. And in doing so, that is how a believer truly can use their freedom in Christ in order to glorify God, as if they're seeking to imitate Christ in what they do. And how we do that is by looking at the examples of Jesus in the Scriptures, looking at other believers around us in our lives, and seeing how they're living out the Gospel in their own life. And as we imitate Christ in our lives, we obey God, and by obeying God, we bring glory to Him. And we're going to talk about glory because that's a big part of this passage, and I think that that's what Paul is trying to bring forth here. So, the main proposition of this whole passage is the idea that our freedom in Christ is not freedom to do as we please, but is freedom to do that which pleases God and that which brings glory to Him. So again, to the Corinthian church, this is a huge deal. They didn't have God. They had the false gods of the pagans. So when they became free in Christ, when they're told that they're no longer slaves to sin, they're they're slaves of Christ, they don't understand that the freedom they have is not freedom to do as they please. It's important to recognize, ladies and gentlemen, that freedom is bought with a price, right? As we all know the verse, I'm going to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6 in verse 20. This is another very popular verse, but this is very important. I'll actually start in 19. Paul writes to the Corinthians here, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So again, this letter is addressing all of the issues in the Corinthian church that Paul is writing to them about. And whenever Paul says that they were bought with a price, he's talking about their redemption and the propitiation of their sins through the death of Christ. So the idea that they're bought with a price means that they are not free of their own. They were bought. They're servants. The idea, the context, the, the connotation is that they're servants of Christ. They're no longer slaves of sin or servants of sin, but now they're free from this bondage, but they're bound to Christ. But we, as believers, know that being bound to Christ is the only place where freedom actually exists. So as we look at the word bought with a price, we need to understand that our freedom is not freedom to do as we wish. It's freedom to do as God commands us to do, to bring glory to His name, which is 
the, the chief end of our creation, which we'll get to. So Romans chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, we are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves of Christ. And then he goes on to say that we are slaves of righteousness. So we are not free in a libertarian free sense where our, our salvation makes us allowed to do whatever we want. It's not a license to sin and live as we please. We are slaves of righteousness. We are slaves of Christ. What we are able to do now that we were not able when we were in the darkness is to please God and bring glory to Him. Only by His grace, though, as we all know. So again, another passage that highlights this very well is 1 Peter 2, verses 16 and 17. He says that we are, all, or we are to honor all people to fear God and to love those brothers in Christ. And the idea here is that our, our propitiation... Christ's sacrifice for us was for God's glory. That's the main purpose. That's the main thrust of the whole story of redemption. Not only that, but in so doing, how do we bring glory to God is by loving others, is by putting the needs of others before our own needs as we live out our Christian faith. So again, remember, our creation even. God created us ultimately for His glory, and Jesus Christ died for us ultimately for his glory. So the creation and redemption story is not about us at all. God created us to partake of him because he's a gracious and loving God, not because of any need that he had. So I'll give you an illustration here to help kind of... We, we live in a constitutional republic. We don't live in a monarchy. So a lot of the language of kings and servants and, and um, king of king and lord of lords, those don't really come naturally to us in our context. So imagine a servant in, let's just say, 1611 in England, under King James, and he's running around doing his duties, right? If he is a servant of the king, that means the king basically owns the rights to his labor and all of his loyalty. And what does this look like? What's his duty? What is this man, the servant of a king, to do? Well, we all know that if he doesn't obey the king and doesn't bring honor to his name, if he dishonors his name, if he goes against his words, he's probably going to get beheaded, right? That's pretty common. They would call that being a traitor. You're, you're not loyal to the king. So we have a gracious God who has adopted us into his household. He's our king. Christ is our king and our Lord. So as we live this life as believers, we need to recognize that our duty, our chief duty, is not to forward any of our own agendas. It's to lay ourselves down and decrease that Christ may increase, that His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And ultimately, to honor His name. When we die, our legacy not, not, it shouldn't be Jeff Sterling was this. It should be He loved Christ, and He lived that Christ may be known throughout the world. And that's what we ought to seek to do as believers. So, we need to recognize that we, all, we owe all of our loyalty and obedience to Christ in all that we do. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, in question number one, the one that everyone gets to as they try to go through them all, and then so we all memorize that one. What is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And I think that that's really, Paul's getting at that throughout this letter to the Corinthians, but specifically in this passage when he says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He's, he's kind of laying out their, the, the telos, their teleology, their purpose for life. Because once you 
you got to think of the radical difference between pagan idol religions and Christianity in the time for the Corinthians, especially the fact that Corinth was one of the busiest towns in the region. So, so number one, you were bought with the price to glorify God. We are slaves of Christ and not slaves of sin. Number two, this is important because when Paul tells them to imitate me as I imitate Christ, he's operating under the presupposition that realizing that only those who have repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ are able to imitate him. So those who are dead in their trespasses and sins and who don't have a new heart within them, they cannot please God. And even us, of our own accord, without the grace of God, our works are as filthy rags. So we need to, we need to recognize that when Paul talks about imitating him as he imitates Christ, he's speaking to believers specifically. And as we imitate Christ, the one thing we can do with the indwelling of the Spirit and the grace of God given to us is that we, as believers, are able to reflect His glory first to one another in the church and then out to the world. And that's how missions works. It starts in the church. We, through partaking of the table of the Lord, through worship and prayer and the sacraments, we begin to conform ourselves to His image and we reflect His glory more and more. And as we talk about glory, it's important to kind of talk about the twofold glory of God. There's the glory of God that we can see that we can never reflect because it's, it's unique to God. There's, it's the glory that we only can see a sliver of revealed in the scriptures and in creation because God is so glorious and He's so holy. And then there's the glory of God that He imparted into all human beings as the image bearers of the God and creator of the world. And this glory is the one that I think Paul is focusing on, how we, in our actions, glorify God. Because God has a glory that surpasses all understanding, no matter what we do. All we are here to do is reflect the slivers of glory that he has revealed to us, to those who don't know him. So as we talk about this, recognize that faith in Christ is the necessary presupposition that is required to bring any glory to God in any saving sense. There are unbelievers who do things that can bring a sort of common grace glory to God based on just their natural image bearing of God, but it's not in the same way that those who are in Christ can. It's not, there's no salvific grace in that. So as believers, we need to apply this to ourselves by seeking to conform ourselves more and more to the image of Christ by partaking in the body of Christ coming to worship Sunday, praying regularly, taking the sacraments, um, giving ourselves to others in service for the sake of God's kingdom. One of the things that I believe if we all prayed every day more regularly, we would be, we would be much more comfortable and confident in our role in this life. And it is this, Lord, allow me to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all else will be added unto me. Unto you is what the text says in Matthew 6. But the key here is, is we as believers ought to be seeking first God and His glory and His righteousness before we ever seek to do as we please because we were bought with a price. We don't own ourselves. We are His servants. We are heralds of His word. As we leave here, we go out into a world that doesn't know Him. And the marks of a true Christian, as we know, 
are his our love. They will know that you are Christians by your love. So it's important to recognize that if we ask God to teach us and allow us to more rigorously seek him in every area of our life, we will become more like him. We will grow in our holiness. We will grow in our love for one another and our love for Christ. And number three, it's important that we understand that God is glorified as we obey him. And God is glorified as we put the souls of others before our own interests. Paul, as an example, was a great example in the New Testament. His mission in life, his sole mission after the road to Emmaus when he was transformed, was to build the kingdom of God. He wanted nothing more than to bring souls into God's kingdom. And why was this? Was this because Paul was holier than everybody else because of something he did? No, it's because he was radically changed. He recognized his depravity. He saw in himself the self-righteousness and the hypocrisy of his persecution of godly believers for years and years. And he bowed his knee at the foot of Christ and surrendered to him that he would be of no reputation just as our Lord Christ died, that he would be of no reputation, and that the Father exalted him, that we may exalt him as well. We obey Christ by loving God first, and then secondly, by loving our neighbor. I'm going to turn to Matthew 22, and this is when Jesus summarizes, the, whenever the Pharisee asks him, what is, the, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus sums it all up, saying, in verse, verse 36, the Pharisee says, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on, all, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And again, this was already, the Jews would have known the phrase, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. That was the Shema in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 6 that was given to Israel, the prayer they, they did to God as the only God. But the point here is that Jesus summarizes that the way we obey God, the way we glorify Him, is by loving Him and loving others. And if we are to do that, we are to put our needs last. We are to put our needs below others. We are to be servants and in this, we bring glory to God. And again, as Pastor Pugliotti mentioned in his opening, that the providence of God is over all creation. So imagine, think about the violent windstorm we had last night, or any severe thunderstorm. That it's, it's not n- normally frightening to you unless you're standing out in the middle of an open field during that thunderstorm. And what you're, what you're seeing reflected is the, the wrath, the might, the vastness of God. Think about how powerful those storms are, how violent they feel in the moment. And think about how calmly Jesus, on the, in the boat, in the water, calms the sea and the wind. And how much more God the Father in heaven controls every ounce of this world. How He, and not only does He control it, it all reflects Him. Even, you know, it said, I forget where, but even if we don't sing, the rocks will cry out in praise of God, for He is holy. It's important to recognize here that if God is providentially upholding all of His creation, He's doing so because 
He created it in a way that reveals something about Him. It glorifies Him. And it's important that we, as Christians, recognize that His natural world can glorify Him as well. All of creation obeys God, and that's why, and that's why it in turn glorifies Him. Just as we can glorify God by obeying Him, because all of creation, the rocks, the trees, the wind, it obeys God, it brings Him glory. And again, this is important because the world that we know is marred by death and sin due to the fall, but that does not negate the effects of God's grace poured out on his planet. Even in the act of creation, it was a loving kindness that was not necessary, and it reflects his character and his attributes. How we live this out, how do we obey God and glorify him? We submit every area of our life to the Lordship of Christ bringing every thought captive before the throne of God. It's easier, obviously, said than done, but the key here is that it's over every area of life. There's not a square inch of your life that God does not have entire sovereign control over. And as we recognize that, we shouldn't be afraid, we should be comforted. Because, ultimately, He, He's working all things for good according to His purposes for those who are called by Him. And we need to... We need to rejoice in that. It's it's a great, great grace that we have been given by God in Jesus Christ. And also recognize that we can live this out and glorify God as we love others by serving them and their needs before our own. And this is why we do mercy ministries. This is why it is important to seek out ways to serve in the church and in the community because it really does bring glory to the name of God if we serve others on his behalf, as he told us we ought to. As we close up here, I just want to kind of summarize how we can walk away from here and take what Paul said to the Corinthians and apply it to our own lives in a way that is simple and clear and edifying to our souls. So, brothers and sisters, live every day not as the master of your own universe, but as a servant of God. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He sovereignly protects you every day. He upholds your breath. You wouldn't be able to breathe without His hand upholding all of creation. There's not one thing that we do that we need to worry about. The Lord knows our... He knows our plans, and He knows that there's folly in our plans, but He also knows that He is seeking to prosper us as we glorify Him. And it might not be physically prospered. We might suffer a lot in this life. But we prosper as believers by bringing glory to Him. And that is our sole focus in this world. And again, otherwise, why are we here? If our purpose is not greater than ourselves, if it doesn't transcend our human interests, then it's no better than any other world religion that ever existed. Christ radically calls us to die. Just as God came in the flesh, died, that he may live. That he may bring all of us, those called by Christ through the Spirit, to himself. So everything we do is in subjection to this truth and to him. Every sphere of life is providentially governed by God and is, is controlled by his, his grace. The, the important thing is, is God is a gracious God. He is steadfast. He is patient. He's slow to anger. We're called to be those things, and we fail, but God never does. God, even after Adam and Eve sinned, God did not wipe 
them off the face of the earth entirely. The flood did not wipe off the human the human species entirely. There's he left a remnant. Why did God leave a remnant of people to worship him and glorify him? Because it pleased him to do so. That's it. It glorifies him and it pleased him to do so. We don't know the whys. But what we do know is that he is a loving God and he is gracious. And we need to rejoice every time we wake up and take a breath of fresh air because ultimately he controls that. And the brevity of life, as all of us know, is one way that we are often reminded of our need for Christ and our need for his sovereign hand. As I mentioned earlier, one of the best ways to remind yourself of your position in this life is to seek first God at all times. Because ultimately, although we are the ones physically working to provide for our physical needs, ultimately God is the one who provides us the ability to do so. Our existence depends on God, and therefore our, all of our provision for our family, all of our income, all of our health, all of our relationships, they are upheld by God. And He, if we seek Him first, He tells us in the Scriptures, He will provide for our needs, both physical and spiritual. Not one hair will fall from your head apart from the hand of God. Our freedom in Christ, as this sermon is about, it's not, it's not slavery in the sense that we are bound to do against our will anything. It's, it's a gift from God that is aimed at His glory. We now, as believers in Christ, who are free from our sin, can glorify God, and we ought to rejoice in that. Because we, by His gift and by His grace, are able to do what we were created to do, brothers and sisters. And no one else, those who don't know Christ, those who live in sin and reject Him, they will never live out their ultimate purpose for their human existence. And we need to be praying for them, and we need to be seeking to bring souls into the church. Because human beings are not just bodies, they're, they're immortal souls as well. Body, soul, joined in one. And our duty is to glorify God and love those people. So as we leave here, remember we are no longer tied to our sin. The cage that we were in, we still sometimes walk in it and close the door and act like it's locked and we live in our sin for a while. But if you are in Christ, the door is always unlocked. We are able to leave the cage whenever we go to the cross. If you come humbly to the foot of the cross and you seek God first in His righteousness and you do it for the sake of His glory, He will uphold you. He will pull you out of the muck and mire. As image bearers of the King of Kings, He has granted us glory in ourselves, in our image bearing, but He's also granted us freedom from death that we, in this life and in eternity, may abide in Him and partake of Him forever. And that, brothers and sisters, is, is what I'm leaving you with. Our lot in life, our portion, is the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. The triune God has brought us into His family that we may commune with Him for eternity. So, rejoice in that. Let us pray. O oh Lord, we come before You and we thank You for this time of worship. We thank You that we could open Your Word, the letter of Paul to the Corinthians, and seek out the truth in there, not for our own sake alone, but for Your glory and Your honor. 
We ask that as we depart, depart from here, we would recognize that you love us and that your grace is sufficient for us and that love covers over a multitude of sins and that our duty to you is to obey your word in the scriptures, your commands, and to love you with all of our heart and all of our soul. We love you and praise you, Lord. We know we have many needs in this congregation and this community. We pray that we would be a beacon of light to this community, that we would go from here and seek to win lost souls to Christ for the sake of your glory alone. We pray this in Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.